Okay, how's that? Is that all right? I mean, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Word of Podcast. I'm Evie. And I'm Webster. And today we're here with Frank Shepard. Good evening. <laughs> what an intro. <laughs> yeah, you always mesmerize me with your voice. <laughs> you do have. Oh, it gets me in trouble. Eh? <laughs> so Frank, you're a poet, you're an artist, you're a performer, you're an actor. I missed something already, I think. No, I am what they call me at the moment. Uh, sometimes they call me a beatnik actor, <laughs> uh, you know, a jazz actor uh, in that terms. But uh, this poet thing has come up lately in the last year or so. It's because I, I began uh, doing the spoken word uh, quite regularly, thanks to you. <laughs> and uh, Enos Bless over there and getting me involved in this whole circle of things. And then I've been hearing from people that I'm a poet. <laughs> I, I write. Uh, that's true. Uh, I have been uh, blessed with knowing poets. And that goes back some years uh, in San Francisco where I produce some plays of, of some poets uh, I got to meet a great poet uh, called Baraka, Emir Baraka, back in 1967-68 when I was in high school. And because there was this very chill disturbance at my high school in my last year, and I got introduced to him. And uh, he took me under his wing and we drove around in the dead of the night because everything was under secret. And it was like this racial trip going on. It was my first introduction to dealing with all kinds of things because I was involved in other ways in athletics and student at this school. And I had to uh, be a part of integrating this high school. And uh, after being there for four years, the, uh, that spring of my graduation year, something broke out between uh, a black student, a girl, and a white guy. And uh, he took it upon himself to get this other person named Anthony Imperial, who was trying to make a movement towards dealing with what was happening with the Italians and the blacks in 1967-68 when the whole black movement was on, going on. And so Imperial was talking about what about white power so when this guy went to Imperial, they began to uh, picket the school because the white guy had gotten suspended and the girl didn't. And what had happened was the one day after school, a bunch of people drove up and uh, the blacks had to take these bus. We had to go, we were bus to school. We took the public bus almost seven miles every day to school in this white neighborhood to integrate it. And these people showed up and they started beating people on the heads with baseball bats and things of that nature. And I wasn't at that bus stop, I was at another bus stop. And 
because I didn't want to stand there with all these people at the time. I used to like take the bus and stop before. And so when they went down, they said to me, oh, Frank, it's not you, it's them. You see, they had accepted me as being a part of them because I had gotten to that school and within the four years of being there, I had became captain of the football team and I was like this, well, person who stood out in that respect. So they looked at me differently because over those four years they were playing sports with me and dealing with me not only in the classroom but outside the classroom. So for them, it wasn't me they were having a problem with. It was those people, and those people were my people. And I was like, well, I was in a state of confusion because I wasn't into politics. I was into sports, and it just, I didn't deal with it at all. It wasn't on my mind. I did look at this program called Soul that was a black program that was on the PBS. And I had some things going on with me. But when that went down, I was like, wow, what's going on here? So then I, I, I was chosen as a spokesperson. I mean, they brought me up to this whole uh, auditorium of white students to me to say what was, what was going on, what's happening. And so some people introduced me to some people, some people from the Communist Party, and uh, Eugene McCarthy was running for president at that time. So there was a lot of other things going on that was, was about to happen. And you had the thing in Chicago and all these other things. So I just got thrown into this whole box. And Baraka, somehow or another, was somebody who they told me to go see. And he had run this organization in, in Newark. And I drove around with him and, and, and things. But then he brought me into this whole bit, and which got the whole city involved because I was at the school where the, the, the burgomaster's daughter went and the fire chief's son went. And so I was in this environment that was completely elite in that way. And uh, so when he got them into the situation or this situation came up, it brought a whole lot of other things because it ended up with me going on these people from the Communist Party giving me information and showing me how to get on television. So I was on like the evening news. And then we called a, a citywide boycott of the high schools to come out at a certain time to go down to the armory. Uh, my only thing was I was just looking for the students to be protected there at the school. But when I got involved and these other people got involved and they began to ask for things that they really wanted and they had an opportunity to get to change the curriculum of, of the school. And so you had people who said, well, we should have black studies and we should have uh, Swahili and we should have all these other languages introduced as a part of the, the, the school system. And so my whole point was like, well, I just want these how many was us in this school? 50 out of 300 students mm. or something like that at this school. And I just wanted to make sure that they could come, they get their safety. So that was like my eye opener to politics and social issues. And I got to meet Baraka 30 something, almost 40 years later, because after I left him and I got to meet him when I went back home. And he remembered me as a 17 year old kid who was dealing with this other thing and he had gotten involved. So the last thing he told me that I should be a writer and I should go on and this and that. But that was like my first experience with an artist uh, and a poet at that time. 
Wow. <laughs> <laughs> what an introduction. <laughs> Most people start with, um, yeah, you know, I had a pen and a paper and uh, I wanted to get my ideas out, but that's uh, quite a way to be thrust into, uh, into that world. Well, basically, I, I was always been able to be tapped on the shoulder. I mean, I got into acting because uh, some people say you, you're going to act. And uh, then I, I produced uh, plays before I got into it, it on the stage. I right. had, there was a price to pay before becoming a performer. And, and that was producing and doing other things in San Francisco and eventually finding my way into the business uh, the business or the, the craft. Uh, I was fortunate to be in a community center in San Francisco, and people used to come through and do volunteer work, give workshops and things like that. So I never had to pay for a workshop. I always got it for like, hey, come on, we're going to give you this. And and to my good fortune, I, I got to work with some of the artists from the uh, another generation artists from the 50s, Bea Richards, who performed many years in, in movies and got nominated for Academy Award. She was my, my teacher in, in San Francisco. Uh, then um, the woman who directed Your Arms Too Short to Box With God, oh, Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope. Uh, she was my, my director of San Francisco Opera in, uh, in San Francisco. And I got an opportunity to meet people who were from that other generation who took it upon themselves just to give it to me. <laughs> I was fortunate. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for our audience who don't know you, uh, how did you get to Amsterdam? How How has your life uh, in the U.S. Uh, taken you here? Oh, you, my journey. Yes, your journey. I started off in Newark, New Jersey. And then when I finished uh, school, I, I went to work on Madison Avenue for capitalists and white capitalists. Then I went to work for Johnson Products, a black capitalist. And that was after my hippie days in, in, in college. So I went through that and made my way to, to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, uh, things change. Uh, I got involved with different kinds of people and they brought me into the, the art scene. And I just fell into it, not fell into it, and I wanted it after a while. And I got to get to Los Angeles and work in Hollywood, the Hill Street Blues, Alpha Hitchcock Present, theater, film. Uh, then one day in uh, San Francisco, this guy showed up and said, oh, he, he, he had auditioned for a play. Uh, and they were coming to Europe. And he told me about this thing, and so I, I went and got myself a saxophone, or I had a saxophone or something, so I went on the audition, and they were coming to perform in Edinburgh, and then come for a few days in, uh, in San Francisco. They had booked the uh, Beauvaisal and uh, the South Scarborough. So uh, they took me, I spent a month in Scotland, the Edinburgh Festival, then we came over to do those five performances or something, and somebody had given me a name of somebody at the Malkvac, so I went by to see him when I got here. And he said, oh, you know, Idris and Rodessa, you can play here. And I said, well, you got to wait uh, until, this is September, so you got to wait until, like, November <laughs> or January, something like that. 
And so I said, oh, yeah, okay. So I thought I was going to hang out in Holland for a few months. In the meantime, I got a job with a group from Chile who had got deported from Chile. They had went back over to Chile, and they put them on a ship, and they uh, docked in Rotterdam. So they happened to be in Rotterdam, and these people got in contact with them for the, uh, this festival, Showcase Something Festival. That was, And so they needed an actor, and I answered an ad in the newspaper. So I went and performed with the people from Chile until I was able to get my thing going at the Melkvec. And, and that was it. So I worked with that group. And then, uh, yeah, I did something at the Melkvec. And then this guy asked me to do a student production he was doing called The Meeting. It was about Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. And he asked me to do uh, Malcolm X. And luckily for me, I had connections at the Melkvec and I had an open date. So when we finished it at the, stu- at the school, the theater school, I was able to say, well, let's, let's take it over to the milk vet because he gave me another date because it was no business in February or whatever. So he said, when you have something, you can bring it. So we brought it back, and it was a hit. Econ Television did it as a teleplay. This producer from Econ walked up to me at the school, gave me her card because she thought her father would want to direct this. He was a freedom fighter. He was a filmmaker. So he, he made a teleplay out of the, the piece called The Meeting. And... That was it, in, in in that terms, and we toured uh, the country and. Uh, and how like many that. years now have you been here? Oh come on, that's many years ago. <laughs> that's many years ago. That like that's when uh, I came here in the '80s. I got here in '86, so when I arrived in '86, everybody was looking at what was coming from America, political or social, and it, it hit a nerve. So much of a nerve that I got to go and be a guest and, te- and te- uh, speak at these uh, high schools and things and like that, where they would have an American day. Somebody saw me do the performance at the Melfac and invite me to ha- have a whole meeting with like three classrooms of students, who, mm. high school students, talking about freedom in America and all these other other things. So it, it just clicked on that nature. And that was at the time when people were up on the uh, whole thing that was going on in South Africa. So if you look at the whole thing that was going on here in the, in the late 80s and the political and social things that were going out, it was all about South Africa, it was all about the other things, and then you had this whole issue. If you're doing something about Malcolm X, it was like, wow, Malcolm X. So that was like people wanted to know and people wanted to, to deal with it mm. on that time. Um, that, was, that was it, right time, right place. Um, Again, this guy saw me walking out of a, a place, and before I got home, he got my number and called me to ask me to do this student thing for him. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll do it. In which I got to meet uh, one of the people from the Black Poets. Yeah, uh, uh, the Last Poets, yeah. And uh, he and I, he did uh, Martin Luther King, and I did Malcolm X, and I was a real, follower of, of the last poets I, I listened to them when I was at university and then I got the opportunity to work with the, the original uh, wow that must yeah, be impressive experience Mr. Kane <laughs> <laughs> Guylan Kane and that was that was a great experience uh, and he and I to uh, do it for television it played on the econ for three years they kept bringing the piece back and mm. we toured the country with it and how would you say that Amsterdam changed throughout all these years or the scene, not just Amsterdam, the scene and the people. Well, the people I know 
all gone. And then and, and I got real fortunate to work with people where it would be like if I had an idea <laughs> and if I got up in the morning with an idea, I can walk into some place on the announcer and say, hey, Frank, uh, I got this. I, oh, yeah. And then it was like they, they would make sure that it was done. I mean, the money was here. Everything was there. Uh, so that in itself has changed mm. a lot, a, a lot. But things do change. Of course. Uh, and so that's the difference. Uh, but it's cool because I'm meeting a whole new other generation of people. And I'm working with people now who I, I'm working with and I work with their parents. <laughs> so that, <laughs> that's been happening a lot lately, you know. Mm. I'm working with somebody. Oh, you work with my father. Oh, you work with my mother. You, you that that sort of thing. So there, there it is. What are you working on nowadays? On Saturday, on Valentine's Day, I'm doing this piece called Two Tales in One Song," based on a piece of product I made called the uh, is a CD, and uh, it was where we're doing tales and songs, and I wrote all the tales, and Flores does the music, and we do a live performance so we, that's what we're doing now as far as something to say solid that I'm continually doing um, then there's things that are always happening at the labyrinth I find myself at the labyrinth a lot in that respect um, it's a good place to be and it's, and it's smooth and everything and I work these guys there <laughs> at the labyrinth and uh, other than that I just did a movie it was on last week on the uh it was a documentary on Donnie Hathaway and it was called Mr. Soul so it was aired just last Sunday oh no for, uh Saturday on the VPRO uh I so you can still catch it on for miss and that was interesting because it was from a phone call uh via via somebody told this guy you want to do this you want to change get this guy Frank Shepard so he called me and I went to the studio and I laid, did some lines for him that he had written for a certain part that he wanted to change in the movie. Uh, he wanted this character who was in Donnie Hathaway's head to have a voice. Because Donnie always talked about this character who followed him all his life called Mr. Mr. Soul. So he had a little part written for Mr. Soul based on interviews and everything. And then he decided, hmm, I think I want to change some things in, in the movie. I want to have your voice more. So he put my voice on many different things in the movie, which then made me larger in, in the film. Uh, and I became Mr. Soul. And uh, it, it worked out really well. I, I didn't know what I was doing because you, it's out of context because you just have text and you read it. And you deal it in the moment, and you don't know how it's going to fit in this whole scheme of things. So how he added it into the whole thing, I became the voice of the movie, so much so that uh, these people in Rotterdam invited me to be there at the premiere of the film and and do three songs or two songs uh, for an audience. That that was nice. It was in a club situation. And I, and I got a chance to do a, a couple of songs. I'm not Donnie Hathaway, but I, I do like to interpret things like he used to interpret things. If he did a song that somebody else did, he definitely did it his way. 
and whatever hit he wanted to put on it. So I work like that anyway. If I take a song, somebody go, I thought I heard that song before, and it's a re- <laughs> and oh now, but it's an interpretation, and uh, I, I don't like to do covers. If I'm gonna do something somebody else did, I'm gonna bring something else different. I'm not gonna copy that artist. Right. And I'm also wondering, do you have preference for the performing to live audience or acting? Or it's both equally close to you? I, I would imagine that what comes, comes. It's the moment. <laughs> you know, because when, you, when you're saying acting and live and this, there's so many different aspects to this thing that we do as far as uh, creating something for someone else. If I'm doing an animation for a Taken film or if I'm doing an animation or doing something for a corporate, if I'm working for Philips or this or that, it all involves being able to make something believable and true. Mm. And with that, I enjoy doing that rather if it's on stage or if it's a voice or if it's in film or whatever that is a part of me that I enjoy. So there's no real preference over mm this or that. I believe sometimes I miss something if I do something so much on this side. I say, ah, you know, I haven't done something in the studio in a long time or I haven't done something or stage or something. But other than that, it's just like if it comes, it's, it's the moment and you make the most out of what you have to do at that given time, that opportunity. It sounds like you've done a lot so far in your career. Uh, and it's great hearing about all the projects that you've done and uh, the projects that you're doing. And I'm just wondering, how do you stay inspired and how do you keep the energy uh, to be able to keep coming up with new ideas? Well, you know, when you, when you say that my career, I have a thing called from film to live. I experienced that from film to live. There been a few times there's something I've done in film or on stage has become live. Okay, I'll give you an example. I had a casting director manager who always believed in me. And he believed that I cross the color line. So if you send something out to say, oh, we want some actors and da-da-da, and if you don't put, we want black actors, it's assumed that you want white actors. Yeah, and when they send out the, the daily, they say, oh, we want a black actor, we want a this, and you see it when you're going. So you say, no, Frank, go over there. Go over there anyway. <laughs> so I go in, and it changed the whole concept of what they want. Hmm. So I had a, a film called Condom Sense. Great title. Okay, now it, it was a film that was dealt, made for health services and things to get people to use condoms. So the, 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 the premise was this guy was a counselor or he, he was talking to a guy about using condoms and he didn't want to use them and the guy had to convince him why he should use a condom because his woman wanted him to use a condom. Now, I did that film so I'm walking through the neighborhood with my son, and I see all these teenage women out there pushing baby carriages. So I say to 
the guy who's running the center there and I said, hey, I got this film, maybe I can show it to these guys. And uh, he said, oh, the hell people are gonna be back here next week, you should come by and meet these people. So I go there and this guy is there and he says, hey, I got that film Condom Sense and you in it and we got a project from Ford Foundation about teen fathers and we need a community outreach worker to be a part of this program to bring these boys into this program to be teen fathers since it's teen pregnancy. So Ford is doing the thing, yeah? So my mentor said, ah, Frank, you could do something for the neighborhood. Ah, okay, so I take the job. And the next thing I know, I'm on Good Morning America. <laughs> I'm booked in something else. And this project has become so big that it's on Donahue, is all over the whole bit. So because I did the character as a counselor, mm. I get asked to be a real counselor. <laughs> <laughs> then I get invited to Rotterdam to some uh, the, the, the Kodak uh, theater or something where they were huh, to be a keynote speaker uh, and show the film in Rochester, New York. They fly me cross country, to, to, and I had only been at the job for three days. Yeah. <laughs> That's so brilliant. That is how it, it it works. A lot of times, if you do something and people see you do something. Then they bring you into something else, which then is all about changing uh, the thing. My out is one thing, but for me, I've been blessed and able to get involved with making about a change in many other aspects, and for fair housing, for human rights as, as an investigator. Uh, I then segue into being an investigator uh, for the uh, working on private investigator for the. Uh, Black Liberation Army and other things and involved in this whole different aspect of, of things simply because I was asked uh, to, wow. to get involved. And then it turns out like that. Do you not ever feel like an imposter when that happens? No, I mean, no. if, if you're going to deal with people who, who discriminate in housing, who discriminate in other things, they have to be accountable, brought to account for that. And if it's a way of getting them to make something right and do righteous by others, because it's so horrible to discriminate against somebody because of the color of their skin or their race or whatever. And if a person feel that they want something and they go there to get it, and then they feel they don't get it simply because of who they are, it's wrong. And the, and the people want to get away with it. If they get away with it, there's a price to pay. And, and that's one of the whole things that the United States had in many respects, where they got involved in that respect to say, okay, if they're going to be discriminating, then we're going to have people go in and, 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 and try to catch them in that lie, catch them in that point. And, and we have a service where people can call and say, I feel I've been discriminated. And it happened to me personally. I knew this place. I wanted the apartment. And when I went there, the guy said, oh, no, it's not, it's not, a, it's not available. But I had a sense I, this thing was placed. So I said, my girlfriend, who was Japanese to this Korean store that was in our neighborhood, and they told her, oh, yeah, it's an apartment there. <laughs> so that's, I had left, I had left, I left America after that situation. But uh, a couple of years later, I got this thing from my manager that they gave me 15,000 because I had applied <laughs> that I felt that I was discriminated against. And they caught them in this discrimination. And two years later, I got $15,000 for their, for their 
Wow. Thing. <laughs> Sounds like it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is worth it. I mean, no, it, it's like you and your discrimination is, is, is horrible. I mean, they used to discriminate against uh, black men in, in, in San Francisco, and I was asked to do this undercover thing for the uh, Human Rights Commission to see what hotels were, uh, were discriminating against black men who wanted to get a hotel room in the worst part of San Francisco in the Tenderloin. And these things, these things happen, and they have to be taken care of. And if you get involved, you, you find many ways of making a change for people voting. making it, And so those are the things that I'm most proud of in, in those situations where you really change something as an individual. Yeah, of course. And you, it seems like uh, you say yes to a lot of projects. Have you ever said no? <laughs> no, but no, 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 no. <laughs> I said yes, and... I say yes, but it's how you're getting into something. I became a private investigator working on murder cases simply because I was looking for some money to make to supplement my acting. And this guy who was there at my mentor's place, he said, hey, why don't you work with me on this case that I'm working on? And he happened to be a real famous lawyer who, 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 who won the, the case for Attica. He won the case against, uh, he was Fred Hampton's uh, uh, lawyer. So when you put in these situations, there's no way you're going to say no, you're going to, you're going to get involved. Uh, and if you're lucky to be in the right place at the right mm -hmm. time, then, then this is what's happening. It's like, it's there to be, you're supposed to be there and this is supposed to happen. And, and that's just the way it is. So <laughs> since you say yes a lot, would you perform for us now? <laughs> <laughs> Good segue. You have to place the the tail in the place where it fits, be it mind or heart. And this is something that's been with me for a long time, many years. I could say that it was the thing that got me on my way. Written by somebody named Holly Kern. I don't know where she is right now, but she wrote this and she was a member of the theater company I was in, and I was amazed by it, and it took me around the world. Andy was new, a white kid from New York. Well, he had never been South before. Well, me and Mickey, we, we kept teasing Andy about the training, you see. We was up at this school in Ohio, and part of the training was learning how to protect yourself. Now, when I say protect yourself, I don't mean hitting anybody back. You're supposed to love the, the person who's beating you on your head and burning down your house. That's what old man bear be saying. Old man bear be up there riding on the blackboard. The non-violent activists must refuse to hate. Well, we were up at that school when we got the word about the church burning down. The church where we were gonna hold freedom school. Well, me and Mickey decided we had best head back down there right away. And uh, well, well, Andy, he, he, he wanted to come along with us. But we thought that Andy should stay back up there and, and get a bit more practice. But well, Andy, Andy, he couldn't wait to get down there. He couldn't wait to help register these people to, to vote. So we started on down there driving. And then we were driving in the car and the car radio was on. And, and that's where we had gotten the word that the United States Senate had passed a civil rights bill, 7227. Mickey said that proved you, you were right. Well, I hope he is. We got on down to 
Longdale, and, and we went over there to the church where we were going to hold the Freedom School. So when we got down there, there was nothing but broken up glass and, 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 and brick. And, 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 and they said, don't matter. No, we're going to teach these people to register to vote. So we went over there to the other church where the people were that Sunday. And when we got there, they told us where that happened. It seemed that uh, last week a bunch of white men had drove up and just started beating on everybody and they just, just burned down that church. And they wanted to talk with us, but they were like a little, a little put off. Like, you know, they were like a little scared and they wouldn't talk to us for too long. So we thought that we had best head back on over to Meridian until things cooled down a bit. And uh, we decided to take the, the long road back, you know, and because uh, everybody be out there Sunday driving and things and so on. I was doing the driving. I was doing about 35 miles an hour, you know, just, we just laughing. And around all the time we got out distance from that church, we saw a patrol car following us. And he was following us for a couple of miles and then he uh, pulled us off to the side of the road. None other than Deputy Chef Price himself. Said he was stopping us because one of our rear tires had gone flat. And I, we don't see how because we never left Meridian for Meridian unless everything on that car was working perfect. Well, he sat there on his big eyes and he, 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 he watched us change that tire. And then after we changed the tire, he said, we're all under arrest. I said, for what? Changing the tire? He said, no. He said, I was arrested for speeding. I was only doing 35 miles an hour. Didn't make no difference, though. And said, Andy, Mickey was under arrest for resisting arrest. Well, he took us back to the county jail and booked us all as Negroes, which was a surprise to me because I ain't never known Neshoba cops to be colorblind. <laughs> Didn't make no difference, though. And as they were marching us off to the cell, Mickey said, how about our phone call? The deputy said, later. And Neshoba probably meant never. Well, he took us back and put us all in the, in the cell. It's hot. Hottest day of the year. Longest day. And I just kept thinking and hoping that somebody come down here and get us out of that, this mess. Thinking about those other kids coming out to register the people to vote. I wonder if they find some love in their heart for Deputy Sheriff Price. Around about the time it got dark, deputy walked in, escorted us all out the cells to a station wagon. Well, I had this bad feeling. We probably gonna end up visiting 
some of the deputy friends probably end up tired or feather or worse. We drove us out from the county jail down the rock cut road a few miles. Then he pulled off to the side of the road. Moon was high. There it was. Bunch of the deputy friends looking like a lynch mob. Recognized one of them, knew Harley. Knew him from Meridian, but he wouldn't look at me. And they start circling the car. Shouting things. Ashes to ashes. Dust to dust. If you stayed where you belong, you wouldn't be here with us. They pulled it out the car. And one of them said, to Mickey. Hey, Jew boy! Jew boy, you still think some nigger as as good as I am? One of them took out a shotgun. Shot Andy. Straight through the heart. Harley was over in the ditch throwing up. And they shot Andy. Andy had only been in Mississippi 24 hours. And they shot him without a word. And they just laughed. See what happened to your nigga loving friends, Coon? I was going to die. I couldn't let them do to me what they had did to, to Mickey and, and Andy. I, 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 I'm sorry, Andy, but I, I, I couldn't do that. And I just start swinging my hands, which all kinds of ways and shaking. And I was like, hey, that nigga want to put up a fight. And he took out an iron rod and he started beating me, beating me, beating me on my back. And I just couldn't feel anymore. And then one of them said, Let's finish the nigga off. And they had not all to done that. And they shot me three times. Twice in the heart and once in the head. And then buried our bodies so deep down in that dam that no one was going to find us for a long, long time. And I've just been thinking lately about Mindy, Mickey and Andy laying there in that dirt and old man Bear riding on the blackboard. The non-violent activists must refuse to hate. <laughs> that was a journey, man. <laughs> Well, she wrote that before the movie Mississippi Burning came out. And she did the investigation of how these three young men were killed. And then she wrote that monologue. And she wrote another monologue that won me an acting award in Los Angeles uh, based on somebody going to register to vote. And she was a special person, white girl. Uh, sort of hippie-like, and uh, she was 
writing with the theater company I was involved with in San Francisco, uh, the One Act Theater Company, a Jewish theater company, brought me into their, their thing. And I seen some of her work. And uh, when they wanted to do a monologue festival, I saw a monologue uh, that she had written. I was 30 at the time or something. And the character was 64 years old. So on the audition, I dressed up what I thought the character would look like and went on the audition. And the person who was going to direct this monologue, she thought that I was so old that I would not remember the lines. <laughs> and then someone from the theater, because, you know, no, Frank is only 30, because I had gotten to this costume, and what my head was like, this is what this character would look like. And... Uh, so I got the part, and then I got invited to Los Angeles to be in an acting competition, and win some money, and get an agent in, in Los Angeles. And I went down and won the competition doing this part. And uh, then I used the, that monologue to, for voting registration, uh, campaign for the NAACP, and I rented them the video that I had made of this character, and they used it for their voting drive. And uh, it was, it was like that. It was Willis James Washington, was the character's name. Look what you did to the room. <laughs> <laughs> no, when you said do something, I, I could not. Yeah, you know, what, what, what can I? I can only yeah attribute that beautiful piece, one of the pieces that uh, Holly Kern wrote, and uh, that piece and another piece became a part of my one man show that got me. When I did it in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles, and I did it here when I came in. It was called Living on This Planet. So from that, those pieces, I then put together the basis of a one-person show, uh, adding other stuff, and it was a part. And it's something that I could never forget, even though I did it those many years later. It still can come back to me in, in my head or whatever. It's, it kind of left me a little bit shaken, actually. <laughs> Definitely. I, I didn't know you were going there with it. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Story some boys. Yeah, nice. <laughs> <laughs> no, you realize, yeah, it has that slick when you're talking to a, you're listening to a dead man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's it. That's the situation. He died. James did die, you know. And when she wrote it from that, you can imagine she wrote it from that perspective. And she just said, you can do this anytime you want, any way you want. And, I'm, and this is like, so it stays with me 40 years later or, or whatever. It can come to me and, and, and use it to whatever thing. Yeah. What's your process like getting into the character of a dead man? Well, the, the whole thing is, 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 is it's within me. Yeah. You you really have to know the situations of people on this planet who's gone through that who, who, who deal that, with that if you deal in that way or if you feel that way if that's your, your thing it's just there in, in, in the fact that they just come up and I don't have to think about that maybe I might miss a line and then while I'm doing it, well, I didn't go, oh, I'm sorry, Mickey, I didn't want to give in to that. But that's something, but that doesn't have to be because I can 
real play around with it because it's mine now that it can I can say, oh, I missed that line. And as I'm saying something, I say, I missed that line. Then, you, oh, well, yeah, 45 years ago, how could you remember that line? But you know you missed it after you go past and you go, oh, I didn't do that. Well, I came here. Yeah, and then I'm, I'm trying to think of the time, too, how much time we have in, in uh, this. Yeah. Nine minutes and 25 seconds. That was how, <laughs> that's how long it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a perfect length because I was running out of data. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm wondering also, um, since we already talked about how much yes you say, and uh, how your process works, what would be your advice to people who are starting or who are just thinking of starting and exploring the scene or the art scene? Yeah, that's difficult. Because before I became an actor and I was working in New York City, I got as far as the actor's studio door and I didn't go through. I, I didn't go through because I felt like I'm a businessman and I'm this and this is expected of me and da 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 and what am I gonna go into this this art thing? So it, it's a matter of if you, if you feel it, you just have to take that step and do it. That there is, a, again, I was fortunate to meet people who were in the business who decided that they were going to bring me in to it, to use it, to mm. their advantage. And the advantage for me getting into it is because I used to be in sales and everything, they brought me in to be their producer. So I had to produce a couple of things for them and then find my way eventually to get to performer. Yeah. So you must be aware that there's always opportunities and you're going to be willing to take the chance when something is knocking or something is near and I met somebody last night who said I write I write but I haven't performed yet and I said well look you you got to make that step if you're going to do that if you want to do that you, you, you have to mm. that's the only way that it can happen so against all odds just try yeah it's there's no harm in trying it's it's that's that's what it's all about. You don't get anything unless you take a chance at doing it. I mean, every day, every time we I go out for an audition or or something, if if I'm not prepared or if I'm not ever, but if the, if you're going to get the opportunity, you have to take you have to make the most out of it. Mm. And whatever you in the business when you uh, auditioning constantly, and you and you have to be really able to deal with rejection <laughs> as the saying goes you you win or you learn right yeah i mean it, it, you you know there's so many variables that it's just not your work that it's gonna it's like what they want mm. and what is perfect for them that they think they're going to be able to work with and 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 that's the whole key it's not just up to you i mean you can be terrible terrible <laughs> <laughs> or you can be good, 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 and still don't get the part because you're not right in their eyes for the part. Right. And you never know what is right for the part. Yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. But then <laughs> what would you advise not to do? <laughs> there, I, I, I never know that because people never tell me that that's not right to do. You know, it's like I was had an opportunity to do a TV program and they had given me this script and for me to learn the lines. 
And I took the script home. And on my way to the home, I stopped at a restaurant that I go to, a cafe, a restaurant, and to get a burrito. And I went to the, the, base, the bathroom, the base. So I put the script on the wall, and it went down behind this, this thing. And so I couldn't have the script, so I couldn't learn the lines. Oh, no. So when I came in the next day for my re- callback, I said, look, you won't believe what happened just happened yesterday when I was going home. You wouldn't believe that. I put that script on it. And it's, hey, that's Walter. That's the character. <laughs> so you, you, you know, you have it on the thing. And so that's the business. That is, that is, it's crazy. Whatever you do or whatever you don't do, you, you don't know um, until uh, in the spot. And, and if you're fortunate enough, you get it. Hmm. Yeah. So also, you, I feel like you would consider yourself as a very lucky man. Yeah, it's definitely an element of serendipity across your life. <laughs> so. Sometimes it feels like that. Sometimes you can, for me, if I saw something on television and I said, wow, I would like to be in a story like that. You see an old movie and you say, I'd like to be in a, in a, play that character. And it was a movie I saw was about South Africa. And it was made in the 50s. Sidney Poitier was young. He was in it. And I thought the characters were like, oh. And Lord and behold, within a couple of weeks, they're doing a stage production for the San Francisco Spring Opera called Lost in Stars. It was a Broadway show. And they brought up this director from New York. Uh, and uh, I went, this friend said, hey, they're doing it. And I went down there and I got the part. Of, of one of like the character that I thought in the movie because <laughs> I dressed in khaki pants I went there but it, it just happened and sometimes things happen like that and you don't have any it's in the universe there's nothing to do with you it's just completely totally in the universe hmm. and there if you call it luck or you call it whatever it is but that's the way of the world that's the way it turns Well, thank you very much, Frank. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for sharing your stories. And uh, (laughs) where our listeners could find uh, more information about you, your... Last night I was thinking about something. And you know what they call subscribers. But I have a different idea. I want to become something that people can subscribe to. And we're going to take subscriber to another level. It's not donation. It's like you can subscribe to Frank Shepard live. And so not give me money live in my pocket, but go see things as like, you know, I'm a subscriber to that guy. And that means that I go see him because subscribing is different from donation. And when you give donations, it's more like uh, we're we're, we're poor. (laughs) We're done. But if you say, I'm a subscriber. Where is he playing and what is he doing? So just look out for Frank Shepard and call it, consider yourself subscribing and there might be a chance that I do stories that you want to hear and um, you can depend upon that. So there it is. Other than that, just, just check out Frank Shepard on Google or Frank Shepard on Facebook or whatever and just become involved and just connect and I'm open for connection. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
And for our audience listening, you know where to find us on www.wordupodcast.com where you'll find past episodes as well as information about our special guests. Thank you. Thank you and goodbye. <laughs> Doei! Thank you very much. Well, thank you guys. No, no, it was like, it was a beautiful experience because this is much, much different than anything else in terms of, I, I've never worked on a podcast, but I just did see Angela, Angelica Houston, Houston right. on, a, on a podcast a few weeks ago, and I liked the format of this guy.